0: No, no, never. You should never wash my feet. Unless I wash you, you have no part with you me. You me one of you is going to betray me. What are you, who, who is it? It's the one I'm going to give this piece of bread to. What are you talking about? You can't go with me now. Why can't I follow you now? I'll make my life different for you. You will disown me three times. Peter, what are you, what are you talking about? Can you know the way to where I am going? We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. When everything is ready, I will come and get you. Awesome. Well, it is great to have all of you guys here as we, uh, we're jumping into a new series here at Bethlehem Baptist. But before we kind of head into that, I want to ask a question. Um, how comfortable are you with people doing things for you? Raise your hand if you like, really like it. Okay, two people who are honest, and then how many of you guys feel really uncomfortable when people do things for you? You know, it's a lot of people, it's not just me. Because it's true, A, eh? like, sometimes if someone does something, like, really, like, superficial, like, it's the wrong word, but if they do something kind of, like, mid-level nice, they're like, oh, that was really nice, but if someone has to, like, really do things for you, I don't know about you, but I really find I really dislike it, I feel really uncomfortable with it. So, uh, for an example... Um, I've been pretty fortunate to not have broken many bones or had any severe injuries in my life, except for a a couple of years ago, I managed to break my ankle, kind of. Um, A lot of people, when they break their foot, they have a really cool story about it, like they were skydiving, or they were like fighting someone, or they were doing a cool trick on a skateboard. I broke my foot on a bouncy castle, which um, which is the equivalent of plastic and air shattered the bones of my body, which was pretty humiliating, really. Um, what had happened was, it was uh, a friend of mine in the UK, when we were living with YWAM up in just north of London, they had like this kid's birthday party thing. And then by the end of the day, the kids had all like gone in, but the bouncy castle was still there. So uh, me and a bunch of my other idiot 20-year-old friends were like, let's go play on the bouncy castle. And it was like, One of those big ones that you climb up and has like a slide. So you go up one side and then you can jump on the slide. It's pretty common, right? And so we were having a blast, right? We thought we were the coolest guys in town. It's weird. But so we were just sitting and jumping off this bouncy castle, like doing flips, doing spins, and you can do whatever because it's soft and supposed to be gentle. But after you jumped on it a few times, you realize that at this bouncy castle, you went down the slide. And at the end of the slide, there was this region, which I'd call like the death zone, right? And what it was, it was the end of the slide, and it looked like cushy and soft like the rest of the slide, but for some reason, the airflow there wasn't as strong. So it looked inflated, but you could deflate it by just poking it with your finger. Like, with your finger, you could go from, like, it's inflation here and, like, touch the ground. So it looks safe, death, right? And so we kind of knew, so we tried to avoid that, but sure enough... For some reason, I thought I needed to impress my other friends. I don't know why I need to impress them jumping on a bouncy castle, but I did. And I thought I was going to try and jump higher and farther than anyone else. So I, like, launched myself. And in midair, you know when you have those those moments of real clarity, you know? Midair, I had just one of those clear moments where I was like, this was a bad decision. (laughs) Because I'm going way further than I should, and I'm landing right in the death zone. And I'm like, oh no, this is going to hurt. So I go into land, and so I put my feet down, and I was going to try and roll or do some kind of cool Assassin's Creed move, but I didn't. I just kind of like went down, but because it would deflate so easily, my foot where it would normally go there, it kind of deflated, and it rolled my foot sideways. So it kind of rolled in this way. So jumping from about, like from this height to the floor, I jumped and landed basically sideways on my ankle. And... It was terrible. One of the, most, one of the worst parts of it all was, oh, it's coming off, there we go. One of, the, one of the worst parts was, is that after I landed, I'm like writhing in pain because something is bad. And then one of the kids who was still around thought it was funny and he came up and kicked me in the ankle. <laughs> like I know Jesus is meant to forgive people, but that kid will not be in that list. Um, anyway, so I go to the hospital and long story short of it, the reason I say I kind of broke my foot is because I did um, chip a microscopic piece of my ankle bone off, um, but that was it. What more happened is I just managed to tear all the tendons kind of on that side of my foot. So it was bad, but God bless the NHS, they decided it wasn't bad enough to warrant the cost of a cast. And so they sent me on my merry way. And it so meant I couldn't put any weight or pressure or walk on it, but I just had to like leave it there, right? Right. And at first, it was kind of cool because some people would help me with things. But I realized over time, I began to really, really hate it. Like, I hated again and again having to ask people to do things for me. And again, I was the lead singer of a band, which means we played shows. And I could still play shows, but I had to sit down. And for every show, it meant I had to just sit and watch watch my friends carry in all the gear, load up my pedal board, set up my mic stand, then set up all their own stuff. And the first time, I was like, yeah. You have to do my work. But after a while, it began to grate on me because I wanted to feel like I was pulling my weight in the team, and I couldn't do that. And so one of the, I hated it so much that I began like devising ways to get around it. And so we lived on this big Wyoming base, right? And you often had to go from building to building to do different things. And obviously, I hated walking with these crutches because it took so long. And I didn't want to ask anyone to help me, so I managed to devise a system that was supposed to be good but wasn't. What I'd do is I'd take all my stuff and I'd put it on a backpack, right? and I'd wear all my gear that I needed on a backpack, whether it was a guitar or pedals or paper or computer, whatever it is I'd shove in my backpack. And then it took too long to use the the crutches. So instead, what I did is I found a bike that had a front basket on it. And I would take my crutches, and I would pop them in the front basket and lean them on my shoulders. And then I would sit on it and, like, hold my bad foot up in the air while I pushed with my good foot, like, half-pedaling on every turn. And, like would use that to try to like get around the base. And my w- wife, Haley, we were dating at the time. She always just looked at me, she's like, idiot, idiot. Idiot, idiot, because sure enough, we would do it for a little while. And then one time I would push too hard and I'd overbalance. And then you'd swing just precariously to the right. And I'd have one of those moments of clarity of like, this was a bad choice as I like stick out my bad foot and deal with the pain of it. And that was how I would, because I just so desperately hated That sense of vulnerability, that sense of need, that sense of dependence upon other people. And the reason I talk about that is because we're beginning this new series in the book of John, and the whole story, this whole moment begins with this huge moment of having to receive something from someone, having to need help, this sense of dependency. And what you find throughout this narrative is that same sense of discomfort. So if you're anything like me, this might be a discomforting sermon for you. Um, so what it is, this Upper Room series, is we're going to be doing a series through the book of John, and probably about, it's probably about halfway through the book of John, but it's near the end of Jesus' ministry, where he's done all of his kind of signs, he's done all of his miracles in the countryside, he's done all of his preaching, and now what happens is he, he gathers together with his disciples, and they go up into an Upper Room for one last meal, one last chance to get together, <clears throat> and Jesus is able to give his last kind of discourse, his last talk, his last bit of advice to his disciples. And it lasts for about three to four chapters. It's honestly one of the longest bits of Jesus' talking ever. And it's filled with such amazing content and saying, so we're going to be taking a few weeks to look at this and engage with it. But the whole, the whole discourse, this whole scene, which takes place upstairs in one room over one table, starts with an event that I thought about how I was going to communicate it to you. And I was like, oh, I can read it to you, but it just doesn't have the same oomph. It doesn't have the same power if I just read you some words. So I've got some volunteers that have come up who said they'd be willing to help me up. Can we give them a round of applause? Hi, volunteers. Yay. So they're going to help stand in. So they're going to have some seats. You guys know where to sit. It's quite brave. It was one of the weirdest things, like to have someone come up and do an illustration. You have to sit and stare at 500 people on a Sunday. That's fun. Um, So what it is, is the disciples are gathered in this upper room. They've come up the stairs, and now they're sitting down to basically a big meal. And so much stuff has happened recently. So much stuff has happened. I mean, Jesus has been doing signs and wonders and miracles throughout the entire countryside. He's been preaching. I mean, just a few weeks ago, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. From the dead, four days, this guy had been in the grave. And suddenly he's out and walking. And the news about it is spreading all over the countryside. It's going everywhere that Jesus has raised someone from the dead. So this past week, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, the center. It's like a powder keg of politics and power. And Jesus is sitting in there and he's been preaching and he's been teaching and he's been taking on the the priests. He's been taking on the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of the law. It's been these huge confrontations and discussions and it's been intense crazy intense. And so when the disciples are getting up into this room, they're sitting down over this meal, and this is the stuff they're talking about. Like, did you guys hear? Did you hear the Pharisees are putting together a team of people? They're going to try and kill Lazarus. Too many people are following Jesus because of Lazarus. What are we going to do about that? Or, you know, they're sitting around and they're talking, and they're like, don't you realize Jesus is like showing up all the priests and the Pharisees? Something's going to explode soon. Someone's going to Someone's going to lose their mind. And so they begin talking about this. And they're having this meal and they're eating. And and from the other gospels, we know that at this, around the same table, a fight broke out amongst some of the disciples. Because they're talking about leadership and who's going to lead. And they start fighting amongst each other to see who's going to be the greatest. Am I the greatest disciple? Are you the greatest disciple? What's it going to be? And so they're fighting and they're fighting. And then in the midst of this meal, in the midst of everything that's going on, literally halfway through the night, Jesus, who'd been sitting amongst them, stands up, takes a step forward, and Jesus literally starts to take off his clothes. I'm not even kidding you. Jesus gets up, and he takes off his outer robe, and he begins to strip down in front of the disciples. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to go too far. Um... (laughs) Because you don't need that, and my mother-in-law might watch this later, and I need to maintain a working relationship with her. But essentially, he begins to strip down. He takes off his outer robe. He takes off his other clothes, and he basically gets down to his skivvies mid-meal. And the disciples are basically all sitting there like, um, did you tell him to do that? Like, why is Jesus taking off his clothes? This would be a reasonable discussion. And they're they're talking about it. And they're asking, why is he doing this? Why is he stripping down? And it wasn't because Jesus was afraid of getting hummus on his nice robes. It wasn't because he wanted to stay stay clean. Jesus is intentionally stripping down. And what, what the Gospel of John shows in the words that he uses, Jesus is taking off his clothes and begins to take on the appearance, the clothes, the uniform of a slave. He gets down onto his knees and he begins to take the posture of one of the slaves in the household. The great leader is now standing around in his undies like a slave. And as the disciples are standing aghast, not quite sure what's happening, Jesus grabs a towel and he wraps it around his waist. And then he goes and he grabs a basin full of water. And at this point, the disciples are still staring around each other like, what is he doing? And as he gets close to his disciples without much of a word, Jesus, their Messiah, the one who just rose Lazarus from the dead, who's taking the whole city by storm, is now in slave wear. And he begins to come close and wash his disciples' feet. He picks up his first disciples' foot, whose gear, whose sandals probably were not as thick as these. And he begins to take off their sandals, and their first sock, and their second sock, and their third sock. I think Jesus had better disciples or volunteers. But he gets up close and personal as he removes the many layers which they had wrapped around themselves. And then he comes close, dips their feet in the water, and then he begins to wash them. (laughs) What's fascinating to me about this account when you read it in John chapter 13 is John has done lots of details. He's talked about lots of minute things he wants to draw their attention to. But as Jesus begins to wash their feet, there's silence. There's silence. It's almost as if the disciples sitting around literally have no idea what to do. Can you imagine how, how awkward and how uncomfortable this whole scene must have been for them? You know, like Jesus was the person that they had pinned their hopes and dreams upon. You know, they've actually risked their lives to follow this man. He was going to be the great leader, the great king, the great Messiah, who's going to lead Israel to a new kingdom, a new hope. And now here he is, getting close and washing each and every one of their feet. And the account is that there's silence. It's as if they don't even know what to do. This wasn't part of the plan. This wasn't part of the ethos of things. And I wonder for these disciples what was going through their mind. Were they excited? Were they nervous? Were they uncomfortable? Are you uncomfortable? Yeah, they were probably uncomfortable. Because he's suddenly now up close. And there was nothing about this that should be done. I mean, people wash feet before, but... Someone like Jesus doesn't do that. And it certainly doesn't happen now. There's slaves we could get to do that. There's Gentiles. There's, there's other people. There's this task that's meant for other people. But here's, here's Jesus now washing their feet. I wonder, I wonder if they're suddenly trying to hide their feet. You know, like as if they're sitting there thinking like, Oh, Jesus doesn't know what I stepped in today. You know, maybe there's a part of the foot that they were just so incredibly uncomfortable with. Because, you know, there's something about foot washing, which is, I mean, it's a task, right? Like, it's something that you have to do. But there's also something incredibly intimate about it because there's no room to hide. I wonder how many of them were like, oh, but my, my feet are too dirty. Or what, what if they stink? Well, Jesus Will Jesus still be with me if my feet stink? Will Jesus still engage with me? I'm really ashamed of this part of myself. I don't, I don't like how I look in this area. And now Jesus, I mean, his hands are, are right there. His face is right there. Yet the account just shows silence. As the sound of the water Place the room as each disciple has their feet washed. And each one of them has to try and process what is going on, managing their own fears, managing their own insecurities, because there's nowhere to hide when Jesus is right there. There's nothing to pretend. There's no, you can't cover your feet up with extra sandals when he's taken them all off. You can't pretend to have it together when your feet are right there. And so Jesus goes through, and then finally Jesus comes to a, a great friend, Peter. Now, I love Peter because he says what we all think, eh? Hey, Peter's been watching Jesus do this with all of the disciples, and Peter says, no. And he looks to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, are you, you going to wash my feet? And Jesus is almost trying to, like, brush it aside, calm him down, and he says, look, Peter... You don't understand it now, but one day, one day you'll understand what I'm trying to do here. But Peter is just, he's, he's so overwhelmed with it. He sees what's happening and he says, no, Lord, no, Lord, no. Surely you cannot wash my feet. What's so striking about this statement is on the one hand, it's so very humble. It's like Peter has recognized that what Jesus is doing is wholly inappropriate because Jesus is so much greater than to do a menial task like this. So there's humility in Peter's response, but can you note also there's a real sense of pride? I, Peter, Peter is telling Jesus, no, Jesus, you can't do that. Peter is now assuming that he knows what Jesus needs to do better than Jesus himself does. There's humility, but there's also the sense of pride that says, it can't be done this way. It has to be done my way. And so Jesus looks back up to Peter and says, Peter, Peter, Unless I wash your feet, you have no place with me. You have no place in my kingdom and in my family. And now Peter, hearing this, God bless him, takes it one step higher. And he says, well, Jesus, if you're going to wash my feet, well, then wash my hands, wash my head, wash my whole body as well. Just wash all of me. Now, again, there's a great sense of humility that says, I want what Jesus has. But again... Can you hear the pride that says, I need a little bit more then. I need a little bit extra. I need you to do it this way. You need to add to what you're doing. Jesus, what you're doing, washing my feet, isn't enough. I need extra. I need more than what you're doing. Peter begins to add his own sense of expectation and worth and value to what he thinks Jesus is doing. When Jesus says no, Peter... Those of you who've had a bath need only to clean their feet. You have journeyed with me. You have heard my words. You have followed me. Thus, you are clean and you just need your feet washed. And Peter, at this point, having been shut down twice, finally calms himself, learns to wise up, closes his mouth. As Jesus finishes, drying off his feet. And Jesus does this with every one of the disciples, even Judas, the one whom we know is going to betray him. Jesus spent time at his feet washing. And then when it was all done, Jesus got up and then sat back down at his place at the table to, I'm sure, what would have been the single most awkward silence in the history of dinner tables, eh? As everyone's sitting there thinking, What just happened? Anyway, thank you guys. Let's give these guys a round of applause. Thank you so much for being up here. (laughs) What made me laugh, though, was um, when I was texting for volunteers, it's one of the single weirdest texts I've ever texted in my life. Like, hey, could you you help me out on Sunday? They're like, yeah, sure. What for? Can I wash your feet? (laughs) So God bless them. Thank you guys for being willing to... Bear the awkwardness of that. It's a striking image. Jesus, the leader, who strips down to wear slave clothes and then begins to wash all of his disciples' feet. It's jarring. It's disconcerting. It's in your face. And it's the way this whole meal, this whole series that we're going to be talking about, all happens in the context. It's set up by this one key event, And it's almost like John is intentionally wanting to show how destabilizing this moment was because we all have expectations of how things are supposed to go away. They've had hundreds of dinners with Jesus before, but suddenly this one was very, very different because it was disconcerting. It was unnerving. It was challenging. And it was challenging for a few ways. And I think it's challenging to us in a few very still potent ways. Now, if you're like nine, first way is that if you're like 99% of humans, when we think about God, we want a strong God. The story throughout religions, world religions all over is we want big, strong gods who achieve our goals, right? If we put our trust in them, if we put our faith in them, then they'll make it rain. They'll make us rich. They'll protect us when we're afraid. If we have a big, strong God, then we feel safer. Or perhaps you, you prefer an idea of a God who's very like, he's so big, he's almost unknowable. You know, like God is the grand universal cosmic force. He's just this great otherworldly being that we can hardly ever know. There's this huge gap between God and us and we can never really bridge that. It's so easy for that to be a way that's comfortable because as long as God is so big and strong and otherworldly, there's a degree of separation between him and us. And that safety, that separation can give us a little safety bubble so we can make God whatever we want to be when God is that strong, powerful, distant being. What's so unnerving about this meal is how Jesus presents himself. Now, if you've been in church, one of, the, one of the key things that we always talk about is when you look at Jesus, you see God. For us within the Christian faith, God isn't unknowable. He's not uh, unfathomable simply because he has shown himself perfectly in Jesus So if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. If we want to know the things that God cares about, we look to Jesus. If we want to know the things that God values, we look to Jesus. Over and over again, we look to Jesus. And now at this meal, how does God present himself? How does God reveal himself to his disciples? As this strong, mighty king and full of glory that astounds them. No, Jesus reveals himself. He reveals God's glory in slave clothes unnervingly low and humble, taking the position none of us would ever willingly take. That is where God finds himself. It's this beautiful foreshadowing to the cross. See, again, in popular thinking, when we think about the cross, it's easy for Christians to think about that cross is like the low point in the Christian faith. Like that's where things went wrong. That's where things fell apart. That's where God was at his worst. That's where we all things are bad. But in the gospel of John, the cross takes on a very different picture. The cross isn't the lowest point of God's life. The cross is the defining characteristic of God's glory. God's glory is most fully revealed in a naked man on the cross giving his life for humanity. And in the same way that image is shadowed here at this meal, God's greatness is shown most palpably in a man who's taken on the role of a slave to wash our feet And that's incredibly disconcerting because all of our preconceptions about who God is need to get thrown out the window when we look at Jesus in slave clothes. The second reason this meal is so disconcerting, is so challenging, is the proximity. It's it's how close Jesus gets and the way we have to just receive something from him. Now, remember I said it's so easy for us to do things for other people because we get a real sense of value of doing things for other people. We're contributing to society. We're good members of our family when we are doing, doing, helping, helping, helping. But what you see here in the story isn't that's what's valued. Instead, it's this moment of, of receiving something. And there's no room to hide either. Like when Jesus comes close and when he takes off your, your shoes, your sandals, There's no space for avoiding it. There's no way to to hide the smell. There's no way to hide what you might consider ugly or uncared for. There's no way to hide the dirt you've walked in, what you've brought in. It's all there, and there's no way to hide from that. You can't disguise it anymore. One Because Jesus is holding it literally in his hands, centimeters away from his face. And that is incredibly unnerving. Because as long as we're doing things, we can put on an air of security, an air of stability, an air of, oh, we've got it all together. We're good, competent people. I can do things my way. Around this table, that was all stripped away with the raw intensity of the intimacy that Jesus brings. And this, again, foreshadows and talks about the great story of the cross. Because for any of us who have followed, decided to follow Jesus, You will know that there is a moment at which you realize there is nothing you can do to add towards your own salvation. There's nothing you can do to add towards your own healing, your own restoration. There's nothing you can make happen better. Instead, what the cross is all about is standing in front of it and saying, Actually, this is where I am. This is what I've brought. This is what I've walked through. Make me clean. that's what the promise of this cross is. And that is an incredibly vulnerable place to be. If you've ever been in that place with God, you'll know immediately what I'm talking about. It's that place where there's no masks. There's no air of pretense. There's no preconceived notions. It's you. It's raw. It's vulnerable. And it's you in front of God saying, this is what I've got. And this is what this, this foot washing ceremony, this moment, what it shows so clearly is that Jesus gets up close to whatever you've brought in with you. He puts his hands on it. He puts his face close to it. And then by his own power, he begins to wash it away. This one scene, this one moment in so many ways is the gospel. A God who shows himself great in his humility where his glory is most clearly seen through his vulnerability, comes close to us, holds us in, our ha- in his hands, sees us for exactly who we are, and if we let him, washes us clean, and makes us into new people, a new creation, a new humanity. Humanity. This whole meal is based around Jesus' great gospel. And so to finish off today, we're not going to have a song or the band's not going to come up. Instead, I want to finish with a reflection. And now this may be your cup of tea. You may really like it, or you may be like, I don't want to do that. That's fine. You don't have to do anything. But if I can just invite you to, right where you're at, just close your eyes. I want you to close your eyes and in your seat, picture yourself in that upper room. I want you to picture yourself there and you can look around and you can see you can see the room. You can see the lights. And then in front of you you see Jesus. And it's a bit uncomfortable because as you look at Jesus, he's not dressed in grand kingly robes. He doesn't have his crown on. Instead, he's dressed like a slave with just a towel wrapped around his waist. And he comes near to you. And he looks you right in the eye. And as he approaches, you look down at your own feet. I don't know what you brought in on your feet with you today. I don't know if when you look down at your feet, you fear... Maybe you feel fear or insecurity. Maybe you're ashamed of what's there. Maybe you're ashamed of what you've been through, of what you've walked through to get to this place and you're worried about what might happen if other people see what's on your feet. Maybe you feel incredibly uncomfortable and insecure because you don't like what you see. You don't like how they're made to be. You don't like who you are and And the thought of someone coming that close is just so unnerving and so frightening. Maybe there are things that you've walked through that you regret so deeply that you've hidden down for so long. I want you to picture now as Jesus comes close to you and he kneels at your feet. The creator of the universe gets close to you. He begins to pour out water. He takes your feet and he cradles them in his hands. There's no hiding. There's no place to run from. He sees you exactly as you are, the real you. Not the one you put on for other people. He sees you. And despite any fears you might have, insecurity, no no matter how your heart is beating, he looks at you and he smiles. Hold your feet as he begins to wash them. And you sense his love, his forgiveness, his acceptance, and his cleaning, washing over every part of you. Because this is his gospel, this is the great news we hold on to. We bring nothing ourselves but we simply come to Jesus and he washes us clean he sees you he loves you you are part of his family jesus it's so difficult for us to realize that we have to let you be you, that you have to be God and we are just humans. God, it's so hard for us to realize that we don't earn our own place at your table, that we don't make any of these things happen ourselves, but instead we have to just sit here and let you do what you need to do in our lives. God, would you give us the grace to just sit before you as we are, not hiding, not pretending. Lord, and I pray for everyone in this room. I pray they would sense your love and your blood washing them clean. If there are things that they have come in carrying that they feel guilty or weary of holding on to, Lord, let wash them clean. Set them free to be a part of your family. Because Jesus, it is all about you. We offer ourselves exactly as we are. With no pretense, no masks. And say, Jesus, we are yours. To do with as you wish. In your name we pray. Amen. So today if there are things that you want to talk through or pray through maybe as you were sitting there picturing things there you know you might want to process that, that through with someone we're going to have a prayer team available down here at the front that would love to pray with you don't leave this space if you still want to meet with God because Jesus is here just as he was at that table he is here wanting to meet with you. But in any case wherever you find yourself today. May you go with God and may the picture of him being here with you carry you through. So may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And may he give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.